Well, good morning. Um, my name is Chris. I'm one of the uh, elders here at Resonate, and um, glad you're here this morning uh, with us on a beautiful day. Uh, I love fall in Georgia. It is like the best season. Uh, and uh, we are currently walking through a series that um, uh, I think is a little bit more tailored to our current time. Um, I think for many, a lot of the conversations I have uh, pastorally deal with doubt, uh, disillusionment, um, doubts around scripture, disillusionment with the church as a whole, um, sometimes disorientation around uh, life experience versus some of God's promises uh, in life, uh, all those sort of things that um, have been uh, at times struggles, at, at times big questions. Um, and even if uh, this came up in life group the other day, but um, for some it's like, yeah, these aren't the questions I ask. Um, and if that's you, that's great. And, and maybe the series is, is for your neighbor. Um, maybe this is something that somebody close to you asks these very questions, and maybe this is an opportunity to um, kind of dive into questions that you may not be asking, but other people around you may be. <clears throat> and so we've had a chance to cover things like um, the, the question of evil. Why, why is there evil in the world when we have a good God who created this universe? Um, and, and questions, uh, I would argue, uh, we started into um, conversations around Scripture, what is the Bible itself? How do we, how do we talk about inspiration? Uh, which was really a setup for a few other conversations down the road. Uh, but what do we mean when we say inspiration? When God sometimes commands people like Moses to just write down what had happened. When God, uh, sometimes uh, someone's mom gives amazing advice uh, and wisdom, and so the king decides to write down the advice of the mom. Um, or um, sometimes someone like Jeremiah has to record 25 years previously what God had said to him, uh, and then that gets burnt up, and he's got to do it again. And um, all these different um, moments in the Old Testament that speak to how we get the book we get. Um, and uh, they're all unique. They're all a little bit different. Uh, and even into the New Testament, we get some nuance of mail written to churches to specific people at a specific time. We get gospel writers who some are eyewitnesses and some are not and are just interviewing and recording stories to help their friend Theophilus or a community named Theophilus just be more certain about their faith. And so we see all these different ways that the Bible came to be. And, and it helped us unlock a little bit of understanding what, why context matters, um, that, that there's ways that we read the Bible that um, should, should be relying on understanding context that much more, um, that we don't approach it um, just as 2,000 years removed uh, culturally and temporally, um, and, and that it helps us uh, understand the Bible better. Uh, as we move into today, I want to keep going down a little bit of the scripture road, um, and I want to talk about a, a concept called uh, accommodation. And, and it's in some ways God's way of um, fitting or adapting to humanity uh, as he reveals. Um, that God has uh, a, what's called a scandal of particularity. That there's humans at a particular time and culture, a symbolic universe that they live in, uh, and language that he chooses to reveal through. That God chose a real history at a certain time, a certain language, a certain neighbors, a certain understanding of the world that God has chosen to reveal himself in and through. And there's two um, pretty obvious ways, I think, that this sort of comes out in the text. The first, uh, in this Hear me, uh, as we go through the series, we're going to unpack some, some big questions. Um, there were definitely a number of questions around LGBTQIA+, however long the acronym is now. Um, that community, what do we think about it? How do we interact with it? What are our stances maybe on things? All those sort of questions. 
there was uh, questions related to science uh, and faith and are they reconcilable, all those sort of things. Um, this sermon, I would argue, is probably going to set us up for both of those conversations in some ways. Um, Next week, we're going to cover uh, heaven as a topic. Uh, Trey's going to be here to preach, and it is, like, it is his bag. This is like what he's so excited about. Um, that some of the ways we talk about heaven uh, are probably more Plato than they are the Bible. Uh, that songs like I'll Fly Away, uh, maybe not the most biblical. Uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll deal with that. Sorry if you love I Fly Away, but um, yeah. Uh, and so we'll deal with um, heaven as a concept, and we may dabble with hell too, but we'll see. Um, heaven alone is already a huge topic to come to, to cover in one sermon. And so, uh, but I want to start with the two obvious moments, and actually these probably become two of the ways we, we talk about two of those topics coming up. Uh, Genesis 1-6. Let's go there. <clears throat> and I'm just going to read one verse. We'll have a bunch of verses. And on the bottom of your screen, you will see, if you have questions... Go to that page. You can submit your questions. It goes to a Google form. You can be anonymous, which is great. We, we want to make sure, hey, like, I feel like this is like a blasphemous question. And I don't necessarily know it. Want Chris to know my name. <clears throat> That's fine. And guess what? You're probably not the only one asking that question. And so please do <clears throat> fill those out, or you can text them to that number as well. Genesis 1 6. <clears throat> and God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters in the waters. So we'll just start there. So in the Old Testament, we do get this picture of God creating the heavens and the earth. We, we, we see that right from Genesis 1. And, and even as you deal with Genesis 1, uh, the conversation around heavens, at least how uh, Genesis 1 tends to use it, is sort of the sky space. It's just the space in the sky. It's why the sun and the moon and all exist in this heavens. Um, and the earth uh, is simply, uh, sometimes we hear earth and we immediately think giant round ball, but for them, it's the ground. Um, it would have been much more uh, the Hebrew concept of just land itself. Um, so God created sky space and land or, or physical bottom space. And uh, he introduces the rakia, this expanse or firmament, if you're a good King James person, this, this um, sort of dome that, that came into the world to separate out the sky space from the land space. And um, it became, uh, in some ways, and, and, and even the word rakia sort of implies a sort of dome-like view. And if you go outside right now and you look around, that makes sense a little bit. Like you see blue and it covers from edge to edge and it almost feels like a Truman Show a kind of understanding of how the sky works. And they would say there's waters above that dome. And the reason why, because the dome is blue, just like the Mediterranean that they know so well. And so it's blue and there's a sky, there must be waters above the sky. And so that is an understanding of how it works. That's why they'll say um, God opens the windows or the floodgates of that dome and water comes pouring out. Uh, so like Genesis 7, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Or you have Job, who speaks of the storehouses that God has above the firmament for snow. And so you have these concepts. And, and taken literally, in some ways, this would be how uh, the earth is a little bit described throughout um, a book like Genesis. 
that there's water altogether, and that ultimately God um, brings in this dome, this firmament, this uh, expanse, and it holds the waters up into the, into the space, and he dots that firmament with the sun and the moon and the stars. And then that, that creates space and, and air and everything so that land can come forth from under the water. And then that land, underneath that land, is a place called Sheol or Hades, a place of death. And below that are pillars that, that are coming out of the water that ultimately hold that land up. Now, I can see, for people that don't have telescopes, and science, and astronauts, and observable understandings of the movement of planets and the sun and earth and everything else, that, that this is an understanding of the world that they would come up with. It's totally reasonable. You look at the sky and it's like, well, yeah, it feels like a dome. You stand on earth and something's holding this place up if there's water underneath this, and so there are pillars that would hold it up. Now we would stand there and admit this is not quite an accurate picture of reality in some ways, right? We understand there's a round globe, spins, and, and things like that. We, we understand that the way sort of sky works and why the sky is blue and what's above the sky. But God chose a people to step into and reveal himself to that had a particular way of seeing the world. And hear me, it wasn't just New Testament people that, or Old Testament people that saw the world a bit this way. This was a bit of a more cultural norm. And God accommodates to, to the way they see their world and starts speaking to them of saying, hold on, I'm the one who put the sky in its place. And I'm the one who lets the rains come down. And you might see this as windows, and God's like, fine. I open the windows. And I'm the reason why this happens. And he speaks to them on their terms. Now, some may say, no, the world is flat. And yes, there's literally a, a firmament and a pillar. And that's another conversation that's making Genesis, I would argue, do what Genesis is not intended to do. But that God enters into sort of the worldview of an ancient person to speak of how he is the person behind the way they understand their world. He accommodates to them in their moment. And I would argue that God accommodates himself to human sinfulness as well, and he does it over and over and over again. Right for Genesis 3, we, we sort of see right before that, God has created this, this amazing place and this amazing space for humanity, this garden, and it's, it's shalom, it's peaceful, it's God and his people dwelling together. There's no sin yet into the world, yet sin enters into the garden. And there's nakedness and there's shame. But God set up the world one way, and then it started turning another way. And what does God do in that moment? Well, God's the first person to kill anything in history. And he kills some animals and clothes Adam and Eve. Now, before we head too far down this road, I do want to make very clear. I believe there is a decreed will of God. And what I mean by that is that from the, before the foundations of the earth, by his foreknowledge, and this is a whole other sermon, but by his foreknowledge, he, he knows um, and, and ordains what will come to pass. Okay. And, and so we can rest on the victory of Jesus because Jesus, God ultimately decrees all that will come to pass. But there's also a way that God constantly reveals himself in Scripture that speaks to sort of him coming along in the experience of humanity. And so uh, that's, the, that's the area I want to talk through today. And so... Um, I, I want to speak of sort of God's desire in some ways. And I understand that word's loaded, but let's just keep going. And by the way, uh, if you're new with us, 
this is going to be a bit more sort of teaching academic, um, and I hope that's okay. When we get to when we get to December, uh, we'll get into Matthew. It's a good time to start Matthew. It's Christmas time. We'll start with Christmas texts, um, and we'll walk through the book of Matthew. Um, it'll always be a little bit academic. I'm just wired that way, uh, but it'll feel a little different. This almost feels like lectures and classroom kind of teaching, and so I hope you're okay with that. And so, um, but speaking of God's desire, does God wish anyone would perish? No. Does God have a starting and end point of his creation of which he dwells with his people and is flourishing and abundant and there's life and joy and then he comes back and dwells with his people and there's a teeming with life and lions and lambs lay down with each other and, and, and no, he has those things but, but from the get-go things go awry and there's accommodation. God sort of meets his people where they're at. Take the flood. There's so much language of the flood that's sort of a reset of Genesis 1 and 2. Right? It's actually bringing the, the water expanse back together. Um, God drawing out uh, an original uh, family of sorts and commissioning them with the same language he commissions them with in Genesis 1. Now, what does God say in the midst of that? One thing he says is, hey, um, in the original plan, uh, we, just, we just ate vegetables, but you guys can eat meat now too. And um, don't murder people. That's, that's a good consolation law that I'm giving you guys as well. But God also commits in the midst of that to say, I'm never going to wipe out the earth like that again. All right? Like, even though it shows his, his ability and his power to act, it shows his response ultimately to brokenness and sin in some ways. But now he says, even though humanity is still sinful, even though I know, Noah, this is going to go awry very, very quickly, God has committed himself to partnering with humanity in a suboptimal world moving forward with suboptimal conditions for humanity compared to his original design with Adam and Eve and his final design in a new creation. One way to think about this, uh, I think Tim Mackey uses this term, is to talk about God's triage of a very broken world in a sinful humanity. That there is an ideal that God functions out of, of, of how things can and should be. But there's also the real that humanity, pervaded by sin, functions out of, and God meeting us in that middle space and calling us ultimately forward. There's a few really good examples of this in Scripture. Let's take polygamy. Genesis 2, let's start there. And the, and, uh, the rib, or just the side, um, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is the last, bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now we look at this text as, as a marriage text in a lot of ways. That at some point, the man leaves his father and mother and becomes one flesh. There's only one way to leave. There's only one moment to leave your father and mother, and it becomes one flesh, a one commitment to another. So in the garden... Before the serpent is even showed up on the scene, we even get language that points to the uniting of one man and one woman in this moment. Now, how far do you think you have to get in the Old Testament to get into a violation of that marriage covenant? How far? Adam and Eve don't do it. But the next page, okay? Genesis 4, it doesn't take very long. Verse 19, and Lamech took two wives, and name for one was Adah, and the name for the other is Zillah. So it came pretty quick. Now, you totally be excused to think that the Bible then condones or promotes polygamy, because from this point forward, all the major characters do it. 
right? Abraham has multiple wives. Jacob, Moses, Gideon, David, Solomon all have multiple wives in the storyline. They all do. And it's like, hey, I thought this was like one man, one woman thing, but now we've got this multiple wife thing going on in the storyline. What's really happening? Not only that, but God comes along like in Exodus 21 and says, if he takes another wife for himself, this is the law, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. So God even enters in and goes, hey, um, since you're practicing polygamy, if this happens, here's what you do about it. Similar teaching is repeated in Deuteronomy 21 or 25 about the responsibilities of families to marry uh, sisters-in-laws and things like that. And so you have these practices. Now, the ideal is given in Genesis 2, right? One flesh. This is my design for marriage. This is what I desire it to be. But by chapter 4, we get polygamy, multiple partners, And it becomes a part of the culture of the broken humanity. And by Exodus 21, God suddenly comes in and says, here's what you're going to do. Don't deprive the first one of what you owe her. Make sure she has good legal standing so she doesn't become marginalized by this world. And in some ways, it's God triaging between the ideal and the real, God triaging the humanity where they are at and accommodating in their brokenness at the time. So, you can read the command in that law as, that is God's will. But no, it's triage. The ideal was Genesis 2. Same thing with kingship. Did Yahweh desire Israel to have a king that wasn't him? No, he did not desire that at all. Right? It's just it's what we see. And then for Samuel, they all start asking for a king, and they're begging Samuel to, appoint that, to speak to God to appoint them to king. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being their king. And so God right away is going, okay, they've rejected me. Fine, we'll give you a king. Not only that, but there's going to be laws around that king. And guys, it's going to go really bad for you. These kings are going to try to tax you. They're going to try to do all sorts. It's just not going to go that great. And God speaks to them in that. Now, God could have just been like, no, no. I'm going to find all sorts of corrective actions for you in this moment. But no, he, he brings them at that moment and accommodates to their brokenness and makes them sort of like the rest of the nations. And then through David and Solomon, will eventually promise a kingly line in the line of Jesus. And so you have these things. You have divorce. Divorce becomes, I think, one of the best examples of the rest. Uh, Deuteronomy 24.1. So by the way, we already have the ideal of marriage. Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man takes his wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house, and then it goes on to say, like, what is her legal standing if she gets remarried, stuff like that. So, there's an introduction of this certificate of divorce into the storyline. And it says, if a man finds anything indecent, unpleasing. Now, how specific of a word is the word indecent? It's not. It's kind of a vague term. And it caused a lot of debate amongst Jewish people leading up to Jesus' time. There was a, two uh, rabbinic camps that had a big debate on what does it mean to be indecent. One camp um, said it could really be anything. They even said if she burns bread, that's indecent and you can divorce her. And then you had another camp that was really, really strong that said, no, only the breaking of the one flesh bond. So only um, um, infidelity is allowed in terms of, of what is considered indecent. And so they argued. Now, if you're an ordinary Jewish man, 
living in the first century, which one do you think you lean towards? Right? In a largely patriarchal society, they're all going to lead towards that free sort of like, all right, well, if she does anything, I'll kick her to the curb. Right? That, that became uh, probably the more uh, favored by many, leaving many women as divorcees and open to marginalization of all sorts of types. Now, Jesus was asked about this very conversation. Matthew 19. The Pharisees came up to him and testing him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Right? That's the question right now. Is it lawful to divorce for any cause? Which camp are you going to run in, Jesus? And he answered, have you not read what that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That sounds familiar, right? The ideal. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Jesus doesn't even answer their question totally directly, but immediately goes towards the ideal of marriage, right? He goes back to the garden and says, this is what God desires. Verse seven, and they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give the certificate of divorce and to send her away? So they're like, but, 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 hey, Deuteronomy says we have a certificate. How does the certificate fit into this one flesh thing, Jesus? What, what, what's going on here? And then Jesus answers them. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, not commanded, you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So the ideal, one flesh union of man and woman. The real is that there are broken marriages and, and all this sort of stuff, infidelity, all these sort of practices going on where people are kicking each other to the curb. And the accommodation became the certificate of divorce so that a woman would have legal standing within her community. And when asked about this question, where does Jesus take them? He points them back to the ideal for marriage to begin with. And they quote the accommodation and they abuse the accommodation which becomes uh, obviously uh, an area that we'll cover as we cover some of the nuances. But here's, here's what I want us to, to start grasping. That too often I think we take these things that God, um, as if they're God's desired will in the storyline. Right? We read things into the text and go, that's what God wanted. That is God's will. But as we just saw, that's not necessarily true. That God enters in and accommodates and brings triage to a broken humanity and pulls them in some ways forward to a desired design ideal that ultimately we find in Jesus. Let's take, let's take Paul and slavery. Right? That's a fun topic. Why didn't Paul fight against slavery? Right? Because we see that in the Old Testament too. But I would say he actually does. He doesn't do it directly. That's like our little church saying, hey, we're going to take down American capitalism. Right? If Paul were to say that, it'd be like, all right, let's, let's, keep the, let's keep the ideals a little bit lower than that. But he doesn't redefine slavery and tell people to overthrow the whole system, but he does, in his text, redefine the dynamic and relationship that he instructs in Philemon and how we relate to each other. He says, hey, as that slave comes home, he is your brother. I mean, we sing in Christmas time, the slave is our brother. It's true. And in that view, and in that shaping of a worldview, starts pointing to the ideal as the signpost to lead us to ultimately say, God's ultimate desire is not for humans to own other humans. Because of sin, that became into the world, and debts, and wars, and everything else that ultimately led to people owning other people came into the world. And God enters into that, say, hey, here are some laws. 
And the laws are going to be a little bit distinct from your neighbors. So guess what? You can't kidnap anybody and make them your slave. So American practice of slavery is like a blasphemous to the law. You can't kidnap anybody. Hey, and when you have a slave, hey, you got to release them after seven. You can't hold them more longer than seven years. You got to let them go. If they get injured, they get something like that, hey, that, there's, there's punishment for that. They are a life. They matter. And so you had all these laws, ultimately, that were driving a culture in a world that was, uh, where slavery was common, where, where people were treated in, in unimaginable, unhumane ways, and calls them forward and meets them where they're at and continues to drive towards the ideal. Does that mean God, by giving laws around slavery, is like, yeah, I love slavery? No. But it's God accommodating and meeting humanity where it is and continuing to drive it forward. Uh, I think we'll deal with this in Matthew, but I think the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in chapter 5, is very much this idea. Right? Jesus is coming along and saying, hey, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I tell you. And he goes on to say. Now, I would argue, and and given what he teaches, that an eye for an eye is is pointing out, hey, um, when something wrong has happened, you can have an equal response, but nothing more. It's ultimately to keep the sort of like Samson story from happening, right? If you've read the story of Samson, it's like, hey, some Philistines made me mad, and I decided to kill a thousand of them, right? Like Hatfield and McCoy. Someone stole my pig, and now family members have all died. And it's to keep that, saying, hey, that's, that's not... That's not where we're going to go. Here's some laws. Here's some things to bring that back in. An eye for an eye. You can't overdo that just. But Jesus stands there and goes, yes, we, I met you in that accommodation, but here's my desire, to love and bless your enemies. That is the ideal. In the midst of the real, and the accommodation of the law, the ideal was always that you would look at your enemies and you would find a way to bless them. And it becomes this one huge point that I would argue is, is a conversation I have all the time, is does the Bible endorse everything it describes? And I would argue from very much what we just walked through. No. So many people look at the awfulness of the Bible and certain laws at certain moments in Israel history and say, that well, God fully stands behind that. But I would say no. So when the psalmist is sitting there speaking about uh, babies being crushed upon rocks, is that God's desired will? Or is God allowing emotion into the sacred text to say, yes, you can bring all your emotion, all your frustration, all your anger about certain people mistreating you, all, all the ways that the, 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 the outside groups were oppressing the Israelites? And, but yes, but God is not endorsing the smashing of babies on rocks. God is allowing emotion into the psalm. And verses become weaponized in this process that aren't God's ideal to begin with at all. And you can sit there and go, isn't the Old Testament ugly? And you can say, yeah, it is. Because sin's ugly and it's messed people up. And God enters in and, and triages humanity and continues to move it forward. He doesn't even give all the laws at once. We sort of see laws get added as uh, the Torah goes. Um, we, we see him kind of adapt through certain things. Like God calls Israel and says, hey, I, I want you all to be what? I want you all to be priests calls the nation. You are going to be a nation of priests. You all of you are going to be priests. Now, does the whole nation end up being priests? No. Eventually, you have this golden calf story. Uh, they come down the mountain. Moses finds them doing the crazy golden calf thing, and, and there needs to be punishment. There needs to be like a response to that. So God, so Moses is like, hey, Levites, go deal with this, and you are going to be our priests now. And there seems to be a change in the story. 
And so we see sort of God accommodate through the story and God's meeting people where they are and in their broken humanity and constantly having this invitation towards the ideal. As I said, the ideal is not for one human to own another human. And so there's situations like that. Um, there are certain situations where the ideal is that the Israelites would keep their land, but at some point they lose it, and it becomes someone else's land. And there's uh, accommodating laws to govern that, and then God will continue to pull humanity forward, and there'll be a year of jubilee, and there'll be a resetting of all maybe the injustices and the imbalances that exist amongst his people. And that's the ideal. The ideal is quality and justice. Uh, maybe because of brokenness of sin. There's warfare and kings and taxes and all this kind of stuff. And God gives rules around warfare and pulls humanity forward. Hey, Israel, when you go to war, you have to offer terms of peace everywhere you go. You can't have a standing army quite like the other nations. There's ways that he accommodates to them to say, hey, my ideal is for you not to be like the sinful nations around you, and I'm calling you to something greater. And the ugliness is sometimes we encounter in the text as God triaging and pulling humanity in the midst of barbaric neighbors or whatever it is towards the beautiful ideal. Now, there's probably a thousand questions that could come up because of this. And we'll deal with some of them. We'll deal with some of them, I think, when we deal with the LGBTQ conversation. Like, does God still accommodate today? What does accommodation look like in the midst of that? Uh, we'll deal with that with science and how ancient people view the universe and how we would, too. Um, but one of the questions I think it becomes, maybe just a question that's on my mind, is um, take someone who's obedient to an accommodation law. If you're a polygamist living in Israel and you're following God's law around what is proper for polygamy, are you living in sin or not? Right? I mean, hey, I, I've gone through all the questions that people have submitted. Like, I, I think we were voted the smartest church in America. Um, there's some wonderful questions. And it's stuff like that. All right, what does that mean? Are we, are we still in sin? And it becomes a question, all right, what is sin then? Ultimately, yes, and the, the original language word of sin is missing the mark. And even when you get into the Greek and the Hebrew, it's a, it's a bit of the same idea, the sort of missing the mark. Now, is missing the mark the, the, a arbitrary breaking of an arbitrary law? Or is it more than that? And I would argue it is more than simply moral transgression. It involves moral transgression. But I think the word itself implies more than that. That sin is missing the mark of walking as a full image bearer of God. It's a failure to image bear God's beauty, goodness, all the characteristics of God into the world that we are walking in. And there's thousands of different ways that we can ultimately sin and miss the mark of what it means to be an image bearer of God. That is, that is a, I think, a healthier and broader definition of sin. Now, as the Bible speaks of dealing with sin and how God deals with it, it is not a simple dynamic of forgiving of the sin, just kind of pushing it away. Some of that's there, I agree. But it is broader than that. It's sort of this understanding of forgiving of sin and offering grace that brings a new identity and a new humanity to us and inviting us to live out that new identity for the rest of our lives. Like, um, the day I got married, I'm declared, in the eyes of the law, a husband. Now, how much do you think I knew about being a husband at that moment? Not a lot. I mean, I probably pretended I knew a lot, but I didn't know a lot. And it's taken time to understand, all right, what does this identity now mean for me to be a good husband? And, and it's a lifetime. I mean, I joked with uh, Ed and Laura, uh, like, they're still figuring it out. 
What does it mean to be a good husband and a good wife and a good spouse? That's a lifetime progress. And I think in the forgiveness of sins becomes grace and new humanity. And now it's a lifetime of, of working through that, through the accommodation of God towards us. And the role of the church spirit, where people are invited into new creation's postures. And one of the central postures, yes, is repentance. I'm not going to deny that. But as repentance, it is a realignment of all areas towards the original vocation of humanity. Now, does the community of faith get to use accommodation as an excuse to just do whatever we want, that God simply accommodated us, and and we get to sit in the sort of accommodating state? It does not. That's very much what Paul says in Romans. It's like, hey, can we just, if God saved us right here, can we just stay right here? And Paul's like, no. Yes, God accommodates to you, but the community gets to gets to not use accommodation as um, excuse, but accommodation as invitation. That no matter where you are, you are welcome into this community. And we don't order everybody's discipleship the best way we think we know how. Not only that, most of us tend to order discipleship based on our external behaviors, and Jesus seemed a lot more interested uh, beyond external behaviors, but, but internal heart changes. Now imagine, I mean, think of it this way. Imagine you're a missionary, and you're uh, coming into a tribe somewhere on some other continent, maybe, and they're practicing all sorts of inhumane behaviors related to maybe... Um, um, uh, female castration or something like that, something that, that is sometimes found on the mission field. It's been the norm for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Now, your heart in coming to them is to introduce them to the gospel of Jesus, right? That is what you're there to do. And there's a sense in some ways that you have to accept the culture as it is in that moment in order to then, in a long and enduring sort of way, love and introduce them to who Jesus is so that someday that inhumane behavior changes, Right? Like, I'm, I'm so thankful I came to faith as an adult. But I'm also very thankful someone didn't sit down and go, Chris, here are all your sins. Fix them all right now. No. People sat down with me and goes, okay, let's focus on the majors. Let's talk about Jesus right now. We'll, we'll deal with all your other habits and things and all these other things. But it was a triage. It was an understanding, here are the important things and here are the lesser things. And walking with me through that process and continuing to point me towards Jesus. Um, it's in some ways it kind of speaks to uh, what Paul will say about the law itself. He's like, look, the law was like a guardian. It's like a, it's like a custodian over you. It oversaw you while you were a child. And, and, and now as you continue to grow, you continue to mature, now the ideal has been revealed in Jesus and it calls you into something different. And it should affect our day-to-day, like our community life. Um, there's a weird binary, uh, I would argue, coming out of the church right now, that you're either sort of the, the tribe of truth or the tribe of grace. And God doesn't have those binaries to those two words at all. But, but there seem to be um, churches that are really interested in correction and making sure everyone acts and, and exists according to uh, behavioral patterns laid out in Scripture. And there's a whole other group that says, hey, uh, we need to accept everybody as they are. Uh, we may not even sort of call out sin or call people to anything higher, but we need to just be a a, a community of tolerance. First off, we're called to love everybody all the time, always, right? From our neighbor to our enemy, that covers just about everybody. That's what we're called into. And the community receives the Bible, and not only a Bible that accommodates us to where we're at, but it calls us forward into humanity, a new creation. And we sit at this intersection of God inviting us to the table, Inviting us without any precondition, 
right? That's why we call it the, the gospel of grace. It invites us in without any precondition. We don't have to show up with anything sorted out. We simply come to the table with Jesus. But once we are in that community, there's a constant towarding towards the new creation dynamic that we are to live out as new creation, as new created believers. And we want to be defined by the hospitality of Jesus that both invites everyone to the table, tax collector, prostitute, whoever it is, and calls everyone to repentance all at the same time. Now, how does Jesus call people to repentance? How does God call people to repentance? By his what? By his kindness. Right? I mean, Paul will say that. Jesus calls all sorts of sinners to repentance, and he eats with them. And Jesus is even accused of condoning sin. They call him a glutton, they call him a drunkard, they call him a friend of sinners. He was accused of condoning sin left and right, and he was accused because a way of calling sinners was to invite them to share status with him over a meal and then invite them into the kingdom in the process. That's messy. But it's what God calls us into. And there's a way that this whole conversation plays out that's just very grace-saturated. I want to answer a few um, one-off questions while I still got a little bit of time um, that were submitted, and then we'll um, kind of wrap up by bringing it back to this accommodation. Uh, this question, if God is all-knowing and authoritative and he can will whatever comes to pass, why did he allow any of this to happen in the first place? That's a great question. It actually deals with the topic two weeks ago. Parents, was childbirth painful? And dads are like, yes, that couch was very hard to sleep on. Um, I just offended half the room. Um, no, it's painful. Do your kids break? Do you know your kids are going to break your heart? And do you know your kids are going to make mistakes? And you know the world's going to hurt them at some point, right? You know that going in, but you still have them. Why? Because the joy of having them far exceeds the joy of not having them. And I would say, <laughs> teared up the first time too. Um, So why would God create a world where he knows his children are going to go sideways? Because the joy of having humanity far exceeded the joy of not having. And God chose to create. God chose to enter into to create this world. Because the choice to have something rather than nothing was his desire. And he created. Um, what about sort of other ancient stories? Um, whether stories of other floods, stories of other creation, how the Bible interacts with those. Uh, we might deal with this a little more on sort of that science question, because uh, I think it, it plays into this. Um, but the Bible, honestly, is in dialogue with its neighbors often. As I said, it is revealed to a certain people at a certain time. I don't think that's a problem. So, like, there are other flood stories. And guess what? That it probably actually gives credence to some sort of crazy flood happened, because a bunch of different people are all telling stories about this flood. But it's what the Bible says about the flood versus what the other cultures say about the flood. That's where some of the interesting stuff starts coming out. Why did the flood happen? What was the God or gods trying to do through that flood? What is the outcome? And it becomes a much more fascinating conversation to start unpacking related to that. Um, and anyways, uh, we'll deal with that. As I said, we go through the science question. Um, but uh, as one, one, it might have been Tim Mackey on this one too. Um, the Bible's sort of in this constant Twitter stream conversation with some of its neighbors, and that's okay. It shouldn't rock us that that happens. Uh, for, pe for people in Genesis, uh, possibly Genesis being revealed at, in the Exodus, so they're, they're getting told the Genesis stories in their 40 years in the desert, and to go, hey, 
God is kind of like the gods of Egypt, but very different. And he, he creates, and the gods of Egypt create, but man, our God creates very, very differently than those gods did. And so it becomes a fascinating conversation. Um, if we are prone to read and interpret the Bible through an individualistic lens, why do we even study it? Why not just rely on the teaching of more learned scholars of the Bible? Um, hear me, because we are prone to lead, read through a certain lens doesn't mean that everything in that lens is wrong. We are not 100% individualistic all the time. Communal cultures are not 100% communal all the time. And scripture speaks to both. It speaks to a communal life and it speaks to individual life. It just does. It does both those things all the time. And so we do bring something to the table as a predominantly individualistic culture to dialogue with people that are heavily communal. Now, we also have to understand that the text was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And so there's a culture that it was written to, and for us to try to understand that culture well, and, and for us to try to learn those things well. And yes, we rely on people that came before us, and that has existed for 2,000 years, right? Like two generations removed from Jesus trusted on the generation before it, and some of its understanding of the text, who trusted on the exact eyewitnesses to tell them something about the text. And so that is a practice that has existed throughout the church. So yes, we rely on other scholars, but I don't think our individualism precludes us from understanding scripture. It just requires more work and more understanding. Uh, a former church went through a Sunday school series about how the Old Testament is irrelevant and we should throw it out because it's not necessarily for salvation, it's not needed for the Christian life. Hey, there's a big church in town that talks about that. What place should and does the Old Testament have in the life of a Christian? Why is it important to read and study the Old Testament? All right, how many of you saw Avengers Endgame? I think a lot of us sold a lot of tickets, right? <clears throat> how many of you saw Avengers Endgame and didn't see any Marvel movies before that moment? Nobody, right? Like, that would be hard to do, too, right? And you can watch Avengers Endgames and get a general idea of Thanos is the bad guy, the rest of these people are a good guy, and they have the victory in the end. You would understand that simply watching that movie. But there will also be tons of things in that movie you'd be like, I don't think I understand what's going on in this scene. And I don't get this reference. I don't understand why the Captain America is just staring at this woman through this window, right? <laughs> That's weird. He seems creepy in this moment. And why is Thor so weirdly obsessed with his mom? Like, you have all these moments that you would have no context of understanding what is going on in that moment. And some of you who didn't see those movies are like, I don't understand what you're talking about. But you have this. And, and I would argue the New Testament picks up, in, in some ways analogous, to 1,400 years of writing and storytelling and analogies and pictures and is utilizing those to tell the story of Jesus. And so, yes, can you at a bare minimum understand salvation? Sure. But it's like watching a movie in black and white when there's color to be had in the story. And so as we walk through Matthew, we're going to see Matthew is like all over the place, bringing to life so much of the Old Testament and its references. Uh, skip that one. Uh, what do we say about the word inerrant? Um, uh, there's various definitions of that word to begin with. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll lay out two to you. One's, uh, I think, from the Gospel Coalition. One's from the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, let's do the first one. Uh, the God-breathed scriptures are wholly true in all the things that they assert in the original autographs and therefore function with the authority of God's own words. Now, this simple statement, if it means that God doesn't lie, that God is wholly true in what he says, I am for that, 100%. God is not a God of falsehood. He does not lie. Anything along those lines. All right, here's a Chicago statement, which is kind of the big statement in the 70s, became really where the word inerrant became 
uh, adopted by a lot of evangelicalism. Inerrancy is the view that when all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all that it affirms, whether that relates to doctrines of ethics or to social or physical or life sciences. Now, how helpful is that actual statement? Like, I want us to look at it. One, if we know everything there is to know, when we know all the facts there is to know, and we rightly interpret scripture, which, how well are we doing with that? What are we at, 50,000 denominations right now? Do we know we're rightly interpreting scripture at any given moment? And we have the original autographs, which we don't have, and both statements at least refer to that. Then, when we have all those threes, yes, I would say, sure, I can say the word inerrant if I know, I, I can stand there and say, I know all the facts and I know the correct way to properly interpret scripture. But no, it's a statement that becomes very unhelpful, I would argue, that the Chicago group came out with. So I would argue the word itself is this byproduct of, we had modernism that became a lot of objections to the Bible, of how it told history, of how, how it dealt with certain stories, all this kind of stuff. And, and in some ways, the church sort of doubled down by coming up with a word that isn't found in Scripture. Like, I can say uh, the, the Word of God is inspired. I could say that every prophet doesn't speak on his own authority, but on God's, so it's authoritative. I would say that it's true. But the word inerrant just, I think, becomes this modernist definition word that is more problematic than it actually is helpful to describe Scripture. Um, one way to, to, and I think Tim Mackey kind of talks about this too. I've quoted him a lot today. Um, there's, there's facts and there's true. And, and I would argue the Bible sits in this world of true and is not as interested in facts, at least how we would define facts. So when, when Matthew says there were two lepers in a situation and Mark says there's one, both of them have a purpose and a reason to record the stories that they do and to have certain scenarios happen and do it in a certain way at a certain timing to express what is true about Jesus. They have a theological agenda in how they are telling the story to a certain culture and a certain experience that they come from. Okay? And yes, all those things are true. Are they all detailed factual? No, and that's not a problem. Because we're, we're trying to overlay how 1800s Germans say that history has to work, which is it has to be detailed, perfect eyewitness accounts. Yeah, all these people are eyewitnesses to, to, to either Jesus himself or the early church. And they're telling a story of a God who came into this world to save this world and bring out theological understanding of that. So Mark's going to introduce some little details that go, hey, Jesus is better than Caesar. He's going to do those details differently than Matthew to say, hey, Jesus is really the, the son of David. And they're going to tell the same story, but in different ways, because they're interested in true to a culture that they're speaking to. All right. Let's bring it to communion. Let's remember that the whole story of Scripture is a story of accommodation, and, uh, and we can take that word and also exchange it, at least in this understanding, with the word grace. The whole story is a God who creates the world to be this perfect uh, place of, of shalom and of peace of God and his people together in one place and in this garden. But sin came into this world, and purity broke into this world. And God started working God introduces a thing like the tabernacle, and he allows, um, it sort of points to what he intends with his people so that he can dwell with his people once again. And all the practices even done in that are to point to the sinfulness of Israel and to help them understand what God is actually like. 
And they practice and practice and practice until the ultimate accommodation is found in Jesus. God knew humanity was going to go off the rails, but Jesus ultimately comes and draws us back by faith into the presence of God. And the greatest ideal itself is found in Jesus. That's why we interpret all of our texts through the lens of Jesus and not vice versa. The presence of God of earth, the fullness of God living in a person, that is the ideal as it lived on earth. And the Spirit comes then into all of us by faith to work on this reconciling work that God is ushering in this new humanity and a new heavens and a new earth when they finally come so that he can walk with us again. And God accommodates to our sin and provides grace. And God has always used props and physical acts because we live in a physical space, including the tabernacle itself. Did the tabernacle actually justify Israel ever? No, it did not. And the writer of Hebrews would be like, look, the blood of bulls and goats don't do the work. But they are props that point his people towards God, to reorient his people back to the gods of grace and to show that the God of grace is providing a way to reconcile a sinful humanity to himself. And we have the props now, too, in this meal of bread and cup, these physical things in this act we do week in and week out to remind us and to reorient us back to the God of grace who provides accommodation uh, to us as sinful humanity and meets us on our terms and calls us into something better, ultimately, by faith, turns us into a new creation and is ushering in a true new creation of all things. That is what we participate in when we take from this table. How cool is that? And so we get to come and celebrate what God is doing and the fact that God did not leave us in distant terms but came into our world to constantly work his work of grace and to call a people back to himself. So let me set up communion for us. We give thanks to God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> that before he suffered, and gave up, uh, he gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again. And at the Last Supper, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. So this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. After supper, he blessed it. He said, this is a cup and a new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread, we drink this cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, we proclaim our faith, signed and sealed in this covenant. We proclaim the mystery that has been proclaimed for years and years in the church that says this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let us pray. Lord our God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and this cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, in the glory of your kingdom. And we pray in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So we're going to come forward to receive while the table of both crackers and play music. We'll have two lines. You usually did the little cups. Uh, we are out of those. I don't know if we're going to bring them back. Um, so adjust accordingly. Um, and uh, we'll continue to worship through song. We'll have people available for prayer. This is all stuff you're wrestling through, all stuff you want to pray through, people you want to pray through that probably has questions related to this, whatever it may be, we want to be praying for you. These are struggles and doubts and all these things that we should be wrestling through in community. 
and, and too many people I see push away from the table, go do some deconstruction work kind of on their own, and don't go through this process with community to actually ask the good, hard, and sometimes very biblical questions to understand who this God is and pursue Jesus in a communal sense and on his terms. Thanks. Thanks.